morning, all. Great to see you. Today is the global day of prayer for the persecuted church. So Christians like us all around the world are offering prayers to God for our brothers and sisters in various parts of the world that suffer for their faith. And there are places in the world, some very prominent in our news reports every day, Syria, northern Iraq, such places, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, North Korea. We know that brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering and great persecution for their faith. And so today we want to pause and think about them and pray for them and ask for God's grace and peace. And at the same time, we want to also consider what God may be asking of us with regard to intentionally and strategically fulfilling the great mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation so that they might find the same hope that we have found in Christ. And so uh, today I want to talk about a blessed unrest. And by that I mean, as I've been praying about this particular few weeks that we're going to have together, I am sensing a, a very strong impression from the Lord that God is speaking to a number of us in the life of our church that actually manifests itself in some unrest, an uneasiness. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lack of contentment. There's a, there's a lack of, of peace. Uh, and that's generated by God's nudging us to consider what he may be calling us to do. And in some cases, it may be a call to go to another part of the world and to represent Christ there. For others of us, it, it could be that God wants us to be more prominent in the context of the office in which we work or the school in which we, we attend. And God wants us to be on point representing him. And that's, this blessed unrest is actually a gift of God to help us uh, sort out what he's asking us to do. So I want to preach today from Isaiah's uh, prophetic message to the, to the nation, Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses for us. On your outline today, you have the sermon outline, of course, as usual, but on the back of this, and you can also find this online through the app, on the back side of this is a, is a very simple study. It's all complete. There are no fill-in-the-blanks or anything. How does God guide us? The most frequently asked question that I receive as a pastor is, how can I determine God's will for my life? That question comes in all kinds of forms, but it's the one that is most frequently asked. And this is a simple outline that may be helpful to you as you're processing your sense of call to what God's asking you to do. So... That's available, and I want you to be aware of that as we get started today. As you're turning then to Isaiah 6, I'll ask you to stand in, 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 as you're able to hear these words. And let's begin, let's begin this moment with a, with a brief prayer. Now, Lord, we, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts. You are so good and so wonderful and so kind. And God, it occurs to us right here in this place, Union Chapel Church, Muncie, Indiana, United States of America, North American continent, we're right here in the world, in this spot. And it occurs to us today, Lord, that this is a good place to be. And not only good, but it's relatively safe. And that we can gather today in your name without any fear of retribution. We have no concern today that troubles our hearts, our minds, that somehow we might be interrupted or placed under arrest or persecuted in some way because of our gathering. This is a wonderful privilege. And so, God, we give you thanks. But, Lord, we know that there are many brothers and sisters around the world who may be gathering this day, and they are at risk, and they are in danger, and they are placing their lives, literally placing their lives at risk by associating with your people. And somehow, God, we pray that your grace would be extended to them. We pray for brothers and sisters who are incarcerated, imprisoned, um, incurring horrible treatment. We pray for them today. Sustain them by your grace. We, 
we find it difficult even to face into the reality that this is happening, and yet, God, we know it is. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters. Extend your favor. Extend your peace. Extend your grace, we pray. Lord, we don't know what else to do, and so we call on you, and we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, and the people said, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraph flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and, their cl- and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, for how long, O Lord? How long? May God instruct us today through this important story. You may be seated. I heard of a Christian songwriter, author, who theorized that there is a song in every room. There's a song in every room, and if you can get there first or get in that room and get quiet enough and, and in tune enough that you could actually hear the song. And if you could hear it, then you could literally just dictate it, write it down, and you would have it. The theory continues that all of the songs that will ever be written in the entire universe have already been written. And they are present if you can hear them. It's an interesting theory, isn't it? If we could just hear it. Now, I uh, am not a musician. I, I may find that a, a little bit difficult to comprehend, but I do think there's an application at this point. I do think that there is a question in the air. There's a question in the room. There's a question here right now. And it comes from God, and it's a question that's always been here. And will continue to be here. And of course, God could ask all kinds of uh, vast multiplicity of questions, but there is a question that hangs in the air that if we could posture ourselves in a certain way, we might actually be able to hear it. I wonder if you just pause and listen. Can, can you hear it? I mean, it, it's, just, it's just there. Isaiah was a young priest, not yet a prophet, as we find the report here in Isaiah chapter 6. And he has found himself now in the temple of Jerusalem. The massiveness of the building lent to its sense of awe. The emptiness of the building lent to its sense of loneliness. He stood in the corner of the greatest building, not only in Israel, but of all the Middle East of that day. The temple in Jerusalem was touted as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, he had entered in at a time perhaps inappropriate. It was at night, but he was a priest, and so he had access. And he stood then against the back wall, staring at the expanse of this empty building. Few people were milling about, few over in the corner, one making sure the flame didn't go out, another burning incense. The smell of it was distant, yet pungent. To his nostrils, he gazed across this expanse and loneliness and doubt and confusion 
had gripped his life. It was a terrible moment for him personally and for the nation at large. He had risen to prominence on the wave of hope provided by this new king named Uzziah. There had been a momentary resurgence in the spiritual condition of the nation. Not, not what you would call a revival, but an uplift of hope, national prospects, spiritually, militarily, politically, economically. Israel's status was on the rise under the rule of this new king, Uzziah. Furthermore, Uzziah was good to the priesthood. He was a patron to the priesthood. He had great hopes. This young priest found hope in the young king. In fact, Isaiah had admired Uzziah. He wanted to be like him until arrogancy of heart, pride of life, you know, absolute power corrupting absolutely, small compromises followed by larger ones. Uzziah's leadership and life began to crumble. Disillusionment crept in, and finally Uzziah died. This young priest, Isaiah, had risen on the hopes of this king, and now at the point of Uzziah's death, he worried about the future. He worried about the nation. The throne is now empty. The crown is unworn. Who would follow Uzziah? What should he pin his hopes? What would come now? He, he stood with his back against the wall in this massive building, looking at the expanse with all the trappings and all the settings and all the finery, all the place of religious life in Israel, and it felt to him empty. If he had shouted out to God in the head expanse, all he would have heard the, would be the, the reverberation of the echo of his own voice. God, are you here? Here, here, here. Doubt and disillusionment sweeping over him. Listen to me, friends. There will be uh, moments in your days when you mark the milestones of your life by those things which are beyond your comprehension and certainly beyond your control. There are members of the builder generation uh, in this room this morning, and part of your life has been marked by the events at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. You can tell us where you were and who reported to you when you first heard the news of the attack at the harbor in Pearl. For my generation, the boomer generation, it was the Kennedy assassination. I can tell you what seat I was in in my second grade classroom. I can tell you and describe to you in detail the person who delivered the report of the Kennedy assassination. I can tell you what he looked like. I can tell you what he was wearing. Marked our lives. For the next generation, it was Columbine. For all of us, it's 9-11. And now we have teenagers alive who were not yet born in 2003, September 11th, and their lives now are marked by other things still, because 9-11 is ancient history to them. For Isaiah, this young priest, unknown yet, not yet a prophet, alone in the temple, he marked the beginning of God's intervention in his life by this milestone moment in the year King Uzziah died. That, that marked him, that caught him. A day of national distress, disillusionment at the death of the king. One of the things that keeps us from hearing that question, hearing that call that God has for us, that keeps us from answering the question, the question from God that demands of all of us an answer. The things that, that keep us from hearing the question is the obfuscation, the clouds of confusion created by current events. I mean, there's a big national election on Tuesday. And by the way, you should all get out and vote. That's your God-given responsibility to do so. And I hope you will. Stuff going on, not only nationally, but stuff going on in your own family and your finances and the stresses and the fatigue and all of that stuff empty us. In the year King Uzziah died, add to that whatever you want. In the year I went through a divorce or in the year I struggled with depression or in the year that my job was lost or my business bottomed out or the year my child died. All of that can get so thick in our, in, our, in our minds, in our ears, so loud, so noisy that we can't hear the question. Can't hear it. Questions in the room, questions in the air, 
question floats from floor to ceiling, wall to wall. It's here. It's around you. It's around me. The question hovers over this entire ministry campus. The question is in your car. The question will be in your home when you get there. But the noise, the roar of the ground noise can block out the question. For Isaiah, what was blocking his vision and stopping his ears was the death of Uzziah. But then Isaiah reports, right after he says, in the year King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. And some of your translations, King James among them, say, I also, I saw also the Lord. So in addition to all of the obfuscation and the confusion and the disillusionment that's happening in my world and in my life personally, in spite of all that, I also got a glimpse of God. It's an important understanding. Yeah, there are geopolitical issues. There are personal issues. Okay, yes, there's, there's war and there's pestilence and there's famine. I'm not blind and denial is not faith. I have some real issues. I can see reality. It may be that worship is difficult for some of you today because your loved one is dying of cancer. Okay, denial is not faith. But Isaiah said, I saw also the Lord. You may have circumstances that are very disillusioning right now. Family issues, personal issues, financial issues, career issues that, that, that are very disruptive. Isaiah hears that, and you should see reality for what it is, and at the same time, it's possible to get a glimpse of who God is. See, every great moment of hearing an important question from God, sensing the call of God on our lives, begins with seeing a fresh revelation of who God is over and above the trials and tribulations of life. All I'm saying this morning is, like Isaiah's model, we can rise above all of the obfuscation of our lives, and if we can get a clear picture of God, it will change the perspective on the other challenges in our lives. You'll rarely hear the question of God, though, until you have seen a revelation of who God is. God will always reveal himself before he reveals his word. He summons all of us into his presence before he will ask us the question before he will deliver the call. And so God always uses the circumstances in our lives to make us aware of his presence, aware of his greatness. You okay so far? Pretty quiet. Here's, the, here's my first point. If you're following the outline, it's this. Isaiah saw God. He saw God. The word you need is God. What does he see? He's high and lifted up. His train... The train of his robe fills the temple. Isaiah sees this robe cover the vast expanse of this now quiet religious center. Think about it. The biggest, grandest place of religion in the world and the train of God's garment fills it. And then there are these angels, seraphim, resplendent in glory, awesome, magnificent creatures apparently uniquely designed, created for the purpose of dwelling in the very presence of Almighty God. Seraphim are only mentioned in this context throughout the whole Bible. These two seraphim, apparently there are two of them, and one is on either side of the very throne of God. They are six-winged creatures, with two, the Bible says they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they're flying. And we speculate, why six wings? Why this, why this posture? And the answer is fairly obvious, that God is so great. He is so holy. He is so magnificent that even creatures designed to dwell in his presence are fit neither to see him or to be seen by him. And one cries out to the other, whirling around in its corner of the throne of God saying, holy, 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 Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And the other one in antiphonal response calls back, holy, he's holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. <laughs> and at that, 
at the voice of these angels, this great building begins to shake. From the foundations of it, begin to shake and tremble. This isn't the voice of God. This is merely the voice of angels. You can imagine Isaiah thinking, if this is the voice of angels, then please, God, keep silent. Because if God speaks, the whole place will completely come apart. What must Isaiah be thinking? And in that moment, then Isaiah looks above the trials and the tribulations of his life and above the angels and above the sound, and he looks to God. And it does not say, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw angels. That's not what he reports. He said, in the year King Uzziah died, which has marked my life in such a negative way, I saw also the Lord. That's what he says. He was high and lifted up. Now note the contrast. Uzziah the king, he's in his grave. But the Lord is very much alive. Hear the contrast. The throne of Israel was empty, but the throne of heaven is occupied. Yes, Uzziah is dead and gone, but God is very much alive and present. Uzziah has disappointed me, but God is holy. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah lifted his gaze above the plain of this world and the angelic strata, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple, and he was the focus of the most profound adoration that Isaiah has ever heard. Now listen, if you want to hear the question, if you want to hear the call of God in your own life, then first ask for a vision of ultimate reality. And friends, ultimate reality today is the transcendent, resplendent glory of God, a God who will never disillusion you. And when God then asks a question or offers his call, it's not just another question, it is the question. That question was in the room, but Isaiah couldn't hear it because before he opened his ears, God first had to open his eyes. It's an interesting progression, isn't it? The question was there the whole time, but he couldn't hear it because he couldn't see it. And then he sees. And we become more and more aware of who God is. We will become more and more aware of who we are. Isaiah gets not only a glimpse, a picture of God himself, but second of all, this is on your notes now, Isaiah saw himself. He saw himself. God will reveal his character. He will give us a glimpse of himself in order to help us see our relative need. Verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am ruined, I am undone. The Hebrew there means all my joints have let go. My shoulders have fallen out. My elbow has let go. My hips won't work. In other words, he's saying, I'm melting. I'm paralyzed. I can't function. In American English, the vernacular would be, I'm falling to pieces. I'm coming undone. I'm coming unglued. I'm having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips, he said, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now, this is a symbol of the sin of his culture. Not just his speech, but of life in total, and friends, could I just say to us, to state the obvious, to, to just say out loud what everybody knows, we live in a nation where our words are polluted, our lips are covered in evil, our eyes are corrupt, our minds are corrupt, our spirits are corrupt, I'm corrupt. No one in this room lives above the corruption of our culture. We are all impacted by it in one way or another, to one degree or another. And Isaiah, in this context, does not excuse himself. He sees himself as part of a culture, a generational corruption. And I'm not all that different from the things I see. I'm not all that different than the things that I notice in the people who aren't living for God. There's a whole nation of us found guilty in the day in which we live. Isaiah presents himself before God then in broken-hearted confession. This is a good instinct. This is the right impulse when he becomes aware of who God is. And friends, we have to get a clear picture of who God is. Can I just re recite that again? This isn't a God as we imagine him to be. This is God as he is. This isn't a, this isn't a, uh, a little country club God that when sin arises, when, when something a little off color and off point comes up, this isn't a God who, you know, smiles and winks and nods. 
This isn't, this isn't a, a little bitty God that sits in a great big chair somewhere, so you only really access him when you need something. In the meantime, he just loves everybody and tolerates everybody and goes along with whatever lifestyle people choose. Listen, that may be a God that we've conceived in our own minds, but this is not God as he is. These seraphim, if we could get a glimpse of these angelic creatures calling out day and night, night and day, 24-7, for all eternity, holy. And they can't even bear to look at him. If we could get a clear picture of who God is, we'd get a better comprehension of who we are. And we, like Isaiah, might say, oh boy, whoa, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Serious trouble. Serious trouble. Mm. So Isaiah does not excuse himself. If you want to hear the question of God, the one that hovers in the air over your head, then you have to get a fresh revelation of who God is and a fresh revelation of who you are in his presence. So before our ears can come open, first our eyes have to be opened and our mouths have to be cleansed. Verse 6 is an interesting verse. I've, re I've rehearsed it with you in the past from time to time. And here we find that the seraphim takes a coal from the altar. You remember this now. We just read it. And touches it to Isaiah's lips with his hands. Now, in verse 6, it says that the seraph takes the coal from the altar of God with tongs. But when he delivers the coal to the lips of Isaiah, he has it in its in his hands. It's an interesting mechanical transition. And we are left to speculate about what it might mean. I mean, why not remove it with his hands? If he's going to deliver it in his hands to Isaiah's lips, why not remove it from the altar with his hands? And it could be, I, I speculate with you, that the altar of God is so holy that not even the angel dare touch it. Understand, this is the live coal of God's, almighty God's sanctifying fire. It's hot. It's powerful. It's, it's not safe. It has potential to burn you to the ground. It's the fire of God. And so the angel dare not touch it with his hands. And so why not touch his lips with it still in the tongs if it's so so nuclear, so, so hot. And the reason we speculate for that is that our humanity is so fragile that the mechanical touch of cold steel will destroy me. We require an intimate touch, a more personal grace, and God provides it. I think the angel understands the character and nature of God's holiness and the character and nature of my fragile humanity and understanding both of these things the angel removes the coal with tongs, but delivers it to us with his hand. And what might we believe and learn about the nature and character of God in that transition? We learn that we serve a wonderful God who understands our frailty and understands our weakness and understands us at the point of our need in the contrast of his perfect holiness and he is willing to deliver to us the grace that we need at the point of our need by means of a way which touches us personally and intimately. And I say, what a wonderful God. What a magnificent God we serve who is willing to touch us in such a way. I get the picture. He's pinned. Isaiah is pinned to the back wall of the temple. He's seen the train of his robe, this magnificent angels announcing God's holiness, the glory of God filling the whole house, and a burning coal from an altar so holy that an angel, dare not touch it, is flying in the air closer and closer toward his mouth. Here he comes. It, try to put yourself in that boy's sandals. You're pinned against the wall, and here comes a seraphim with a coal from the sanctifying fire of God's altar. Can you imagine the fear now generated in anticipation of the moment of actual touch? The, the miracle is that Isaiah doesn't just run out of the temple. Just doesn't bolt and run. Instead, 
he is now so surrendered to the vision of God and the vision of himself that he is willing. And so what we believe is happening internally within Isaiah is the same thing that I would challenge us to consider, which is he is saying, God, I don't care if this kills me. I need your touch. And may we, perhaps we could find ourselves saying the same kind of thing. God, we, we, are, we are men and women of unclean lips, and we live amongst the people of unclean lips. And we need your touch more than we need anything else. And in fact, we really can't go on without your touch. So whatever this means, whatever it takes, whatever the consequence, whatever the endurance I must experience, I need your touch more than I need anything else. I've mentioned that C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and he wrote in the book The Great Divorce, a fascinating allegory. It's the story of people who are allowed to take a bus ride from hell to heaven. Now, these are people who are in hell. They load up on a bus in C.S. Lewis's imagination, and they, they, they go to heaven. And the first guy that steps off the bus is a man who has been murdered. And the first guy he sees in heaven is the man who murdered him. So the guy who, the murderer is in heaven, having been forgiven of his sins. And the murdered man, whom the murderer sent to hell when he killed him, unprepared for death, is the first man he meets. So the murdered man steps off the bus, and he says... And, and meets his murderer, and the murderer says to the man who steps off the bus, you can stay here in heaven. You don't have to go back to hell. There's just one condition. He said, all you have to do is forgive me. And if you forgive me for killing you, you're free to stay in heaven. And the guy says, I'm not, I'm not giving you forgiveness. And the man says, no, no, you don't understand. You can't give me forgiveness. I'm already forgiven. I mean, I'm here. I'm in heaven. <laughs> And the murdered man says, if the condition for going to heaven is forgiving the guy who murdered me, then God is unjust. This moment is unjust, and I'd rather go to hell. He gets back on the bus. Most of the people in the story, in this book, The Great Divorce, most of the people choose to go back to hell. One is a bishop who's leading a Bible study in hell. And one of his former students says to the bishop, you don't have to go back to hell. You can stay here. And the bishop asks, do I get to teach a Bible study up here? The student says, well, uh, well, no. I mean, what would, you, what would you teach? We live in the presence of God. We live in the presence of truth. What would you teach? And the bishop says, if I can't be allowed to have valid intellectual challenge to all the fundamental issues of the faith, if I'm not permitted to go on with my ministry, then I would rather return to hell. And the student says, then you've made ministry your God. And the bishop gets back on the bus and returns to hell. And the bishop concludes, I want to live challenging truth rather than live and walk in the presence of truth. Let, let me ask you, how corrupt are we? How corrupt is the human heart? How proud can we become, intellectually proud? spiritually proud more important in my intellectuality and my spiritual smugness than even the truth of eternity it's crazy time there's one young man he's met by an angel with a flaming sword as he gets off the bus the angel says you can stay but you have to allow me to cut that lizard off your back for attached to his back by its claws was a living lizard. It had been there so long that the boy's flesh had grown over the claws. It was no longer possible to tell where the boy ended and the beast began. The boy asks, will it hurt? And the angel replies, it will hurt worse than anything you've ever experienced in your whole life. It will be a moment of blinding, searing, unimaginable pain, but it won't kill you. And when it's over, you'll be allowed to stay. And the boy trembles in the agony of being separated from that horrible, ugly thing that has become so much a part of his life that has been there so long that it is now part of his life, ingrown in his flesh. And he trembles at the thought of what the agony of sanctified separation will feel like. And I wonder, 
If that is similar to what Isaiah must have felt as the coal came closer and closer to him, I mean, how horrible is this going to burn me? And the boy then finally and reluctantly says, okay, slay the beast. And whack! The flaming sword, the angel comes slashing down across this beast attached itself to the back of this boy and the boy drops to his knees in agonizing pain and clutching at his back and screaming and the beast falls at the boy's feet and begins to shrivel and shrink and dissolve and just when it's just about completely gone it begins to rise from the ground it is transformed transmorphed into this massive beautiful white stallion and the boy now wounded but still alive rises and mounts this great steed and rides into the purple hills of heaven. Don't you see it? Do you see? It means that those parts of our lives that are so corrupt and so much part of us leaves us more willing to allow it to remain than to experience the pain of removal. But if we allow God to touch our mouth with that hot coal, God will not lie to you. Will this hurt? You have no idea. Will this cost me? Mm. Yes. I'm concerned about the gospel message that's being preached in modern American culture. Concerned about it. It has about it a costlessness. Come to Jesus. You won't have to change anything. Experience peace with God. Really, there's no, there's no cost to it. It's a free gift. It's yours. Take possession of. You won't have to change. Really? won't have to change. They don't know my life. They don't know me. For the last 40-some years following Jesus, it's been nothing but change. Challenge about that, change that. Challenge about this, got to change that. To this moment, and I'm sure until my last, my last breath, it's about change, being transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is a challenge, really. Well, God, God won't take, you know, come to Jesus, God won't take anything from you. Yeah, yes, he will. How about your will, your life, your ego, your pride, your possessions, your family, your future, your destiny, just minor issues like that. He wants everything. He wants it all. Well, I don't believe in a painful Christianity. Listen to me, friend. I don't believe in any other kind. I don't, I don't comprehend any other kind. There will be a moment when the angel is flying toward you with that hot coal, and you'll have to decide, do I stand here and receive, or do I run? There are people in the room right now and there are issues in your life and you are being confronted by this message, by the truth of God's word, even in this moment and the spirit of God hovering over your life and nudging you and challenging you to consider the question. And your first impulse is just to hurry up and finish so I can get out of here. This will be over soon. Maybe I can tune out just long enough to stay away from this confrontation until I can get out of here. But listen, remember, if you leave, if you run, you'll never hear the question. You'll never hear it. And Isaiah says instead, touch me. The angel approaches and Isaiah closes his eyes and then It's not burned his mouth or his skin, but it has burned away only that which was unclean in his life. Verse 7, the angel says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Your iniquity is gone. Now that's a good moment. And then... 
After Isaiah has seen God and Isaiah has seen himself and his life has been cleansed at the point of his need. Now, thirdly, Isaiah sees the world around him. And that's the word you need. It's world. Isaiah sees the world. God gives us hope. God gives us forgiveness and cleansing. And he gives us purity and he gives us this hope in order to make us realize we are useful to him. Suddenly, Isaiah's eyes are open. His mouth is cleansed. The angel now silent. Isaiah's spiritual ears are now open. And from over his head, the question that has been asked every moment of his life, but now for the first time, he's able to actually hear the question. And it's just above him. And he hears it like a shout. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? (laughs) The question was in the room the whole time. It's in this room right now. Can you hear it? If not, pray for a vision of God and of yourself in the light of his holiness. It will open your spiritual ears. And suddenly the scene shifts. The point of view is no longer Isaiah's. It's no longer the angel's. Now it's the image and voice of God. God now as if in his office, pacing and wondering and asking, you know, I need somebody. I need a messenger. I need a sanctified servant. I need a willing heart. Who might I send? Who could I ask? Does anyone even hear the question, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And the question continues to pour out of the inner sanctum of heaven. It's been in the room all along. And now Isaiah can hear it. I wonder, can you hear it? Can you hear it? Maybe the Christian musician author is right. Maybe all the melodies to be written have already been written. They're floating in the air waiting for the one who can hear it. Maybe all the questions that will ever be asked have already been asked. And Isaiah then hears the question. What is the purpose of my life? What is God's call on me? Why am I here? Why am I allowed to be alive in this moment, in this season of the earth? takes courage to answer that question. We're afraid to walk into God's extreme design for our lives. We hesitate and we're fearful because we think, if I give God all of my life and if I go all in for God, he may ask me to do something that I'm not comfortable with and he may call me to go somewhere that I don't want to go and I can't risk it. And on and on and on. But God is bigger than any of those reasons. Listen, he specializes in taking bruised and soiled and broken and guilty and miserable vessels and making them whole and forgiven and useful again. And some of you may be making the excuse that you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how far away from God I've been and how disappointing my life has been to myself and to others. I have disqualified myself from any effective usefulness from God. Others might be able to hear the question, whom shall I send and who will go for me? But God would never call me but God specializes in people like you you're his favorite kind of case you're precisely the kind of person that God wants to to use remember your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for you're free And I'll just remind you that the scripture teaches that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Where sin abounds, grace does super abound. There are three bullets at the end of your outline. Let me just rehearse them. God gives us hope to make us know we're useful. Verse 8, don't miss the first word, then. In verse 8, then, what is he talking about? When, when then. After the grief that brought Isaiah to his knees, after God revealed himself as all the things the prophet wasn't, after the seraph had touched his lips, the specific area of struggle, and assured him that he was useful, after all of that, God asks him the question, whom shall I send? God's perspective is broader. Now he sees the whole world. Remember when my dad took me to the ballpark when I was about 12 years old, and and I remember rolling up a program, and I was looking through the program like this, and so I could see the batter in the batter's box and the catcher I could span over and I could see the first baseman and then I could look up in the crowds I could see five or six people in the little cluster through my little program and I remember my dad reaching over and just taking the program and suddenly poof, I could see the whole ballpark (laughs) 
Every one of us sees the world that way until God steps in and pulls the rolled-up program away. God will step in and push the limitation away, exposing us to a world that we have never known and never considered important before. And that leads me to the second bullet, which is God expands our vision to make us uh, evaluate our availability. Am I really available to touch the world for Jesus' sake? I haven't the words to describe to you the the jolt I received in being exposed to other parts of the world the first time I traveled overseas. I was, I was in Japan and Singapore and Bangkok, Thailand and Johor, Baru, Malaysia and Bombay, Mumbai, India. Subsequently, I, of course, many times in Central Asia and Kazakhstan. An entire world literally opened up to me. And until then, I was restricted in my vision and limited in my awareness. Up until then, I'll confess that my, that, that my God was an American. He was a Midwesterner with homegrown values, you know, family time at the lake and barbecues and a taste for fresh produce out of the garden, a love for bobber fishing in a creek, deep passion for sports. I mean, that, that was what God loved. That's the world he saw. But let me tell you, when, when this underexposed Hoosier walked wide-eyed through the quaint and unusual paths of the Orient and heard strange music and tasted the strange food, smelled the, the smells... I'd only been out of the country for the first time in my life for three days when I was in Johor, Baru, Malaysia on a Friday night standing next to a Muslim mosque and I stood there and watched 6,000 Muslim men come to the call of prayer. That'll just change your worldview. It'll rock your world. I remember the deception of people visiting a Buddhist shrine in the heart of Bangkok, literally sensing the power of demonic forces swirling about a large Hindu temple and its priest in Mumbai. God and his world program took on a whole new meeting. Things like personal prejudices in my life began to fade along with my own selfish pride of my own race. The determination to get my own way became increasingly, increasingly less desirable. I became strangely motivated to break loose from the tight little radius of my career and my future and my plans. My attention slowly but surely shifted from my world to God's world. Last bullet. God tells us the truth to make us focus on reality. Verses 9 to 11. Now that's straight talk in those verses. None of this, if you go and serve me, I'll bring untold millions into the kingdom. You'll become really popular. People will like you. None of that. None of that. No, no encouraging promises. You'll really feel good. <laughs> Instead, he told the, his man that the challenge would be gigantic. The response to his efforts would be less than exciting. And in the final analysis, there wouldn't be a lot to write home about. That explains why Isaiah answers in the first half of verse 11. He says, well, for how long, Lord, will I have to do this? <laughs> For how long? Really? Last point, I'll put it on the screen for you. The greatest confirmation that one needs is not the tangible results of one's labors, but the inner assurance that he or she is in the center of God's will. That's what you need to know. No matter what God calls you to put your hands to, no matter how you answer the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us, however you answer that question in your life, what ultimately matters is that you know that you're following God and serving Him and honoring Him. And if you know that, then you can continue to do it and God will strengthen you and grace you for the task. So what about all this today? Is God saying anything specific about His world program to you and to me? All of us have to answer that question. Because what God is saying, look, I just need, I need a construction guy who will tell his co-workers about Jesus. I need that guy. I need a waitress who will smile and remind a disheartened customer, hey, has anyone told you that God loves you and God is on your side? He, he needs a, a, a person in the business culture to reflect his values, his virtues, his character. He asks, who can I send to the public school who will reflect Christ? Who can I send as a pastor or a missionary or a physician? Who can I trust who can I trust in a modest place like Muncie, Indiana to fund a mission budget in a modest church like Union Chapel? Who can I trust with that? God says, I need a surgeon who will look a patient in the eye and say, you know, you're inoperable. What you have is terminal. 
you're going to die. May I pray for you? Because you can find another surgeon, but you can't find another Savior. That's what God needs. So Isaiah steps out into the wide expanse of the temple and he says, Lord, I'm not much. I'm a young priest who's lost his hero. I have many questions. I have many faults. But if you can use someone a bit damaged and confused, here I am. Send me. And verse 9, God says to him, all right then, you go and you tell. Go and tell. That's what we do. We go and tell the people. And so, can you hear the question today? Can you hear it? It's in the room. May God give you grace to hear it. Ears to hear what he's calling you to do. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you today, as painful as it is sometimes, that you will use the circumstances, the seasons of our lives that are most challenging to make us aware of your presence, of your greatness, of your holiness. And that as you reveal yourself to us, you will help us realize our own need. So give us hope. Give us hope today. Even those of us who have, who have fallen the furthest away from your best plan. In spite of those bad decisions and poor choices and, and, the, and the depth of our sin, Lord, I thank you that you give us hope because your grace is sufficient. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And remind us then in that hope that you will make us useful in your hands. And Lord, ultimately today, expand our vision. Help us to see the world around us. Help us to see our neighbors. Help us to see our coworkers. Help us to see our classmates. Help us to see our employees, our employers. Help us, God, to see the world around us as you see it so that we might evaluate whether or not we are available to go and tell. Use us, we pray. Help us to hear the question. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.